How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then we'll get started. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege and opportunity we have to gather together around the study of your word this evening. We pray that as we study these things that we would gain a greater appreciation for how you rule through history, how you govern the affairs of man, how you have uh, given specific revelation related to important areas of uh, social interaction. Father, we pray that we would be able to think about your word objectively under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit and that where necessary we would receive correction, and that we would be able to think in terms of your word and not in terms of our own uh, cultural background or or personal preferences. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Open your Bibles to Genesis 9. Last time we finished, we were looking at the Noahic Covenant, a basic introduction to God's covenant with Noah, which comes at the end end of the flood and sets the stage for the rest of human history. As we'll see when we study the Noahic Covenant, it is still in effect. It has not uh, diminished any. Uh, None of the subsequent covenants modified the uh, Noahic Covenant, and it is still in effect. We began by looking at the idea of a covenant, and the first mention of the word covenant is in Genesis 6.18, where God tells Noah... Remember, this is just prior to the flood, that I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall enter the ark, you and your sons and your wife and your sons' wives with you. And I made a couple of points here. First of all, this is the first mention of the word covenant in the Old Testament. It's not mentioned before, even though... I make a strong case for the fact you have two covenants prior to this. This is the first mention of the word. It is not the first covenant. The word there for covenant is the Hebrew word berith, B-E-R-I-T-H. This is the underlying concept of both when we talk about the Old Testament and the New Testament. That's the concept. It's really the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. Now, one thing that's confusing to some people maybe confusing to some of you, is you'll hear reference to something called covenant theology. And covenant theology does not have anything to do with the biblical covenants. Covenant theology, as we've studied in the past, is a form of what is called replacement theology. There are, generally speaking, two overall systems of theology. You have replacement theology... And you have dispensationalism. Now, in replacement theology, what is being replaced is Israel. In replacement theology, Israel failed 
when they rejected Jesus as their Messiah, and so they're out. God is no longer going to fulfill any of his promises to, to Israel. They no longer matter. They're no longer significant. The Jews aren't the apple of God's eye anymore. They're not God's people anymore. God doesn't have a future for Israel. God doesn't have a future plan for Israel. They, they've lost the land. They've lost the blessing. They've lost all the promises. It's over with, and they've been replaced by the church. And this is prevalent in two systems of prophecy called amillennialism, which teaches that there's no literal millennium, and postmillennialism, which teaches that Jesus Christ comes back at the end of the millennium. Now, that's material that we've all studied many, many times. Replacement theology is manifest in Roman Catholic theology and in Protestant theology Lutheran theology, Presbyterian, for the most part, there's a few, a couple of small Presbyterian denominations that are premillennial. But for the most part, they're replacement. Presbyterian theology, uh, almost all Protestant theology, Methodist theology, all of these theological systems are replacement. Only dispensationalism realizes that God temporarily set aside Israel, and during this age he is working through a unique group of people called the church. The church will be raptured to be with the Lord in the air at the end of the present age, and then the last seven years of Israel will come to pass in what is called the time of Jacob's trouble or the great, or excuse me, just the tribulation. This ends with the second coming of Christ. So it's replacement theology, one mode of which that you'll find in Presbyterian or, or Calvinistic circles is called covenant theology. And in covenant theology, the emphasis is not on the biblical covenants. I mean, when it talks about covenant theology, we're not talking about the Abrahamic covenant, the Noahic covenant, the new covenant, the land covenant. That's not what they're talking about. In covenant theology, they have three, two, sometimes three theological covenants. Now, these theological covenants aren't mentioned anywhere in the Bible. But they are, in their theological system, they've deduced these covenants and they use this as the overall interpretive umbrella for understanding the Bible. And in covenant theology, you have these two, sometimes three works, three covenants rather. You have the covenant of works, the covenant of redemption, And the covenant of grace, sometimes you have a third called the covenant of grace, depending on the, the system. But these are not ever mentioned in the Bible. These are not biblical covenants at all. They are simply theological deductions that are then superimposed back onto Scripture to give a, a sort of interpretive framework uh, for Scripture. So when I, we're studying covenants right now, the Noahic covenant, the the Adamic covenant, the or excuse me, the creation or Edenic covenant, and the Noahic covenant. I'm not talking about you know covenant theology. So just 
don't get confused over over that particular particular point. Now, in Genesis 6:18, we have this first mention of the word covenant. And in this in this passage, God says, "I will establish my covenant with you." Now, that's very important terminology because normally what you find in the Hebrew is you find a verb the Hebrew verb karat which means to cut uh and it means to and usually the idiom that you have is to cut a covenant and where that comes from is in the ancient world in order to to establish a covenant if you and I were to sit down and we were to buy a house we would uh, cut a covenant and the way we would seal that covenant make sure that um that that everybody was going to follow the, the the terms of the contract is we would have a sacrifice, and so we would we would kill a an animal we would cut its throat. So there you get the idea of cutting a covenant. Genesis 18, you see the picture of the Abrahamic covenant where God has Abraham bring the animals and he cuts them in half and lays them on the altars on each side, and then God causes a sleep to come on Abraham, and God himself passes between the two halves of these animals, showing that he's binding himself to this covenant unconditionally, and Abraham's not really, he's not not part of it. It's not a conditional covenant based on Abraham. God is saying, I'm going to do this on my own. So you have this idiom of cutting a covenant. And uh, that's not the language we find here. What we find here is the Hebrew, the, the hifil stem of the Hebrew verb kum. Q-U-M, which means to uh, set in place or to establish uh, in the hifil stem, which is the causative stem of the verb, it means to cause to be in place. And it has the idea here of confirming something that is already in existence. See, when we look at this verse in the English, that, that I will establish, which in the English is future tense, makes it look like God is going to do something in the future. He's going to begin this. He's going to inaugurate this covenant. This is something new. But the use of this word has the idea that God is going to reestablish something that is already in existence. God is going to reestablish a covenant that, that he's already made. Well, what covenant is that? Well, it's never been, the word's never been mentioned before, so a lot of people will say the Noahic covenant is the first covenant. But you have a reference in Hosea 6-7, which states that like Adam, they have transgressed the covenant, and the they there refers to, uh, the Jews. And in the Hebrew, the word Adam for Adam can either refer to Adam, the first human being, or Adam also refers to mankind, and there are a few people who will translate this mankind, but if you look at the context, it's not talking about the human race per se, it's talking about the fact that there are human beings who followed in the pattern of Adam in his disobedience. So that indicates that whatever Adam did when he ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he violated a covenant. Now, why is all of this important? 
All this is important because we realize that the God of the Bible deals with men on the basis of legal contracts. He binds himself to specifically articulated legal conditions. And no other God in any other religious system does that. This is profound, and I'll bring out the implications of that in just a minute under point number two. But what we're seeing here is that you have these Gentile covenants. First, you have the Edenic covenant in Genesis 1, 27 to 28, and I'm not going to do it again. But last time, I went through the key terms that you have in Genesis 1, 27 to 28. Image and likeness of God, man is to subdue the earth, rule, exercise dominion, all those terms. And then we looked at Genesis 9, and we saw that all the key words that you have in Genesis 1, 27 to 28 are also repeated in Genesis 9, showing that in this clear contract, because that's what a covenant is, it's, it's a legal contract, in this clear contract of Genesis 9, you have the same verbiage, the same terminology that you have in Genesis 1, 27 to 28. So that means that must have been a co- covenant. That ends with, with the fall, and there's a revision, which we studied in Genesis 3, 14 through 19, when God talks about the impact that the fall has had on the relations in creation. And so we call that revision the Adamic covenant. And then man fails again, and there's the judgment of God at the universal flood, and God reestablishes this covenant, and we call it the Noahic covenant. Now, the first covenant has been traditionally called the Edenic covenant, I prefer to use the term creation covenant because it is God's established way he's going to interact with man and man's responsibilities at the very beginning. See, a covenant implies that there are responsibilities on the part of man, even though man is not a, uh, he's not, there aren't certain conditions placed upon him. Man has certain responsibilities as a covenant partner. There are things that man is expected to do. If he does those, he will be blessed. If he is disobedient, there are curses. And that is what we see playing out all the way through Genesis. And the Noahic covenant is still in effect as indicated by the presence. Well, that's a bad background color, isn't it? As indicated by the presence of the of the rainbow. As long as you see a rainbow, you know that that covenant is still in effect. Now, the second point under this just basic observations on covenant, first point was the first mention occurs in Genesis 6:18, the word berit. Second point, a covenant is essentially a legal contract. It's a legal contract. Now, that implies several things. The first thing it implies is that both parties are persons. First of all, a legal contract means there's going to be two parties involved, basically. You've got God, who's the party of the first part, and man or a group of men who are parties of the second part. Now, this implies for there to be a legal contract that both parties are persons. You can't have a covenant between a thing or an impersonal force or a non-person. You're not going to enter into a contract with the electrical currents that go through this building. You're not going to enter into a, into a contract with a computer. 
You enter into a contract with somebody who is a person. So this implies that the God who gives this covenant or contract is a personal entity. He is an individual. And this implies certain things about the very nature of God. So that when we say that, that God exists, we're, we're not, and that He is there, we're not talking about some thing, some force, some force like in Star Wars or some, some just thing out there in the universe or that, that eternal matter existed. The Bible is clearly asserting that there is a person who is out there who is capable of relationships. A second thing that a contract or covenant implies is that the person who establishes the contract is able to guarantee what he promises in the contract. He's able to bring about what he's promised. So if God says that if you obey me, I will do this, this, and this for you, then the person who's making those contractual promises is able to carry them out. He's able to control the situation and the circumstances and all of the details in history to be able to fulfill what he's promised. Now, that's a profound thought, that God is able to do what he has said to do. And, and this is why you don't have and, and you don't have some Hindu god or goddess making a contract with mankind. They can't pull, pull anything off. They're, they're impotent. You don't have anything like that in Confucianism or Shintoism or Buddhism. There's, there's no religion other than Christianity, not even Allah, enters into a contract with his people. So the one who establishes the contract should be able to guarantee the promises, and that tells us some things about God's character. It implies that the, the one who makes his contract is sovereign. He is ultimately in charge. He is the one who rules the universe and brings about his plan and his purposes. It relates to his immutability. If God is not immutable, if he's going to change his mind tomorrow, then is that contract any good? Not at all. So that means that God is able to bring about, and he will bring about, that which he has promised. So it implies his immutability, that he never changes, that he is constant, he is faithful, he is dependable. And it implies his love. Now why do I say that this implies his love? Because one of the key words that we find over and over and over again in the Old Testament is a Hebrew word, chesed. And we've looked at this in the past, and it's a word that's a little difficult to translate into English. Looks like this in Hebrew. C-H-E-S-E-D. And it's usually translated loving kindness. But it means much more than that. I mean, this isn't just a word. This isn't the Hebrew word ahav, which is the word for love. For example, if you were to tell somebody that you love them, you would not use the word chesed. You would use the word ahav, which is talking about personal love. Chesed has to do with loyalty, faithfulness, and perhaps a full understanding, this is God's faithful covenant love. It is love that is faithful to a pre-established contract. This is the love that is supposed to be at the core of a marriage. You look at your wife and you say, I love you. You're not simply saying, I have warm feelings for you or I'm attracted to you. 
But there are times when you're going to look at your spouse and you may not be real happy with them. But what you're saying is, I am loyal and faithful back here to a contract that we entered into. That makes it real romantic, doesn't it, ladies? Is that you've got this contract you entered into for better or for worse, in sickness and in health, richer and poorer, you know, in good times and bad times, adversity and and uh, prosperity, and I'm going to honor that contract. I'm loyal to that. That's 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 a greater love than saying that I'm attracted to you right now. Because what happens if tomorrow there something changes and they're not so attractive? That becomes conditional, and it doesn't matter what the contract. This is how most people view it when you look at. At marriage. So what do you normally find in a marriage contract? You have these various statements. You know, richer or poorer, in, in uh, sickness and in health. Let's build our columns here. Have health versus sickness. Have uh, prosperity, adversity, and uh, good times, bad times. Okay. Now, what most people hear when you're standing up there getting married is you, you plan on carrying out this contract for, for richer or poorer, you know, and sit in, in sickness or health and, and uh, prosperity or adversity. You know, nobody ever listens to the negatives. But what happens if six months later your spouse is in a train wreck, car wreck, gets some sort of disease. Any kind of thing can happen. And all of a sudden now you may be dealing with a health issue. You may be dealing with, with, with financial crises. You're certainly undergoing serious adversity. You're in, you're in bad times. What gets you through those bad times is going to be integrity and faithfulness to a contract. I think most marriages are failing today because people can't show integrity to a contract. Even when the other person doesn't show integrity to the contract. That's what God is saying in, in, in all of these unconditional covenants is that I'm faithful to the contract even when you're not. That's what love is. I am, I honor my obligations even when you, when you don't. And that's the basis of grace and that's why we can count on God. That's why we have, we call that grace. That's why we have salvation. We have forgiveness. We, we can, we can uh, disobey God to, uh, in extremes and God still is faithful to his contract. He still loves us. So this is the key word in terms of defining who God is. It's not an emotional term. We find out that love here is not an emotion. We say God is love. We're not talking about God being uh, some sort of sentimental, uh, warm, fuzzy up there looking at you and, and getting all sentimental because you're just so nice and wonderful and have such a pleasing personality. He just can't wait to spend eternity with you. That's not what this is talking about. It's talking about God is a God who is faithful and loyal to his covenant, to his contract. This leads to the fourth uh, or the third implication, and that is that the giving of a covenant is an expression of God's grace to fallen man, and it provides the guidelines for the relationship. Now, that doesn't apply to the original creation covenant, but the, the extension of it and modification of it 
in terms of the uh, Adamic covenant and the Noahic covenant is an expression of God's grace. Remember, God, the term for grace means God's unmerited favor, undeserved favor. When man is in the garden, he is created in the image and likeness of God. He possesses God's perfect righteousness, so he, he deserves it. I mean, he has the same righteousness God has. So that's not an expression of grace technically. But after that, with the modification with the Adamic covenant and the Noahic covenant and all the other covenants, this is an expression of God's grace to fallen man where God supplies the guidelines for the relationship. God locks himself in to certain conditions, and he swears by his own name. There's no higher name. He swears by himself that he will fulfill the obligations of that contract. No other God does it. That is, that's a profound thing to realize that your relationship with God is locked into an ironclad contract that he bound himself to, and he'll never change that. No matter what you do, he won't ever change. He is going to fulfill the, his obligations of that covenant. That gives us a, 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 an understanding of what underlies his grace, what underlies all of his promises, and it is a barometer of the faithfulness of God. He is faithful even when we are unfaithful. And then the fourth implication is that that a covenant, the very fact that God enters into a covenant with us, shows that man's relationship with God is always based on immutable legal principles that are articulated in specific written regulations. Notice that they're articulated in specific written regulations. That has implications for understanding the inerrancy of the Bible. This is the Old Covenant and the New Covenant. God writes down and signs the contract. Its terms aren't going to change. The terms are inviolable. And that is, just think about that in terms of buying a house or buying a car or or just the most simple contract most of you have is a credit card contract. You can't change the terms. They're written down. They're permanent. They are viewed as without error. Well, that has tremendous implications for the nature of Scripture. That God has written these things down. There's no error there, and He is going to, uh, He is willing to hold Himself to those, uh, those stipulations. Imagine that. I'm not going to change. This is the way it's going to be. God writes it down and honors that contract. So what do we see here when we come to the Noahic covenant? The, the covenant itself covers the first 17 verses of Genesis chapter 9. It, as I said, any contract has certain parties. All covenants include certain things. They include the identification of the parties to the contract, the party of the first part, party of the second part, Involves certain stipulations, certain requirements, certain obligations to, on both parts. There are certain conditions that are implied in the in the contract. Even if the contract itself isn't conditional, it may have conditions within it that if you uh, do this, I will bless you. If you don't do this, uh, I will I will curse you, or there will be discipline. But the contract doesn't disappear. And then there's a sign or a token associated with each each covenant. So the persons or the parties that are involved in the Noahic covenant are God as party of the first part. And on the party of the second part, you have Noah and his family, Noah, his wife, the three sons, and their three wives, 
and all of the animals. I want you to notice down here in verse 9. God says, and as for me, behold, I establish, and there's the same word again, kum in the Hebrew, I establish my covenant with you and with your descendants after you. Now, every single human being on the planet is a descendant of Noah. So that means that God enters into this contract with Noah and with every single individual. And then, verse 10, and with every living creature that is with you, the birds, the cattle, and every beast of the earth with you, of all that go out of the ark, every beast of the earth. Now, I want you to notice something. He doesn't mention the fish of the sea. Now, I don't know what to make of that, but it's interesting that there are certain animals that are left out of this, but I don't know what the implication is for that. But the parties of the first part is every human being and the animals that come out of the ark and are descendants of the animals that were on the ark. Verse 11, thus I establish my covenant with you. Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. So those are the persons. Now, what are the provisions? There are nine provisions in the Noahic covenant. Nine provisions. First of all, there is a mandate to be fruitful and multiply and to fill the earth, stated in verse 1 and in verse 7. Remember, this is the same command that was given to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. The one thing that's not repeated here is the concept of subduing the earth. In Genesis 1, 26 to 28, they're to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, to subdue it and to rule over it. That is not stated in verse 1 and verse 7, though it is implied by another kind of phrase or another stipulation at the end of verse 2 where it says they are given into your hand. Something being given into your hand, your hand is where your power is. So this is an idiom that you're going to have power over them, but that's different from the kind of ruling and subduing that's mentioned in Genesis 1, 26 to 28. That ruling and subduing was related to man as God's vicegerent. Now, I've used that word. A couple of people have tried to call me on it. So we have two words. In English, you have a word vice-regent, R-E-G-E-N-T, and then you have another word, vice-gerent. See, the only difference is the G and the R switch. But a regent is someone who rules in someone's place. For example, if you're a king and the king dies and the son who's not of age to rule becomes king, then you have an appointed regent who rules in his place. And the assistant to that regent would be the vice-regent. A vice-gerent, on the other hand, is someone who rules as the representative of somebody else. And that's what man is. He's the vicegerent. He rules in the, the over, God sets him up as his image and representative to rule over the planet. But that changes. That changes because of the fall. So man loses a certain amount of authority and ability to ultimately rule and exercise dominion over the planet. And this will not ultimately be fulfilled until the second Adam comes at the second coming. When Jesus Christ returns, it's at that point during the millennial kingdom that these subduing and ruling uh, mandates will ultimately be fulfilled by mankind. But note, it is a command to repopulate the earth, to fill the earth, and that hasn't happened yet. 
You have all your gloom and doomers, your population explosion people who think that we're going to overpopulate the planet. And that isn't going to happen. It's not going to happen before the Lord comes back. It hasn't happened yet. There are certainly some areas where there's high-density population, but it's a matter of technology as to whether or not you can fulfill it. I mentioned this before, that you can have some people who live with a very primitive technology, and if you have more than two or three people living every four or five square miles, you're going to overpopulate the area. But then you look at some place like Hong Kong, which is the most densely populated urban area on the planet, and you see that with the right technology, you can have a very dense population. And someone, I read somewhere that if you took all the people on the planet and gave them one acre, they would fill up the state of Texas. The rest of the planet would be empty. Think about that. Or maybe it was a quarter of an acre. But nevertheless, that gives you an idea that there's a lot of empty land on the planet that's that's not being utilized. It's a matter of technology. Man is still to populate the earth. Second provision is that God says, the fear of you will be upon all the animals. In the original mandates, in the in the creation covenant and then in the Adamic covenant, you don't have this man is still ruling over the animals. There is still some level of affinity between man and the animals. But now there is universal fear in the animal uh, kingdom toward man. So there's a change in, a complete change in the relationship man has toward all of the animals. Third, we're told that, that God says all of these animals, the, the beast of the earth, the bird of the air, Everything that moves on the earth, on the land, and all the fish of the sea, they are given into your hand. This is an idiom for power. This is an idiom for power and strength. It may be even abused power and strength. It is not the same concept of ruling with authority and with prestige, with respect, ruling with responsibility. This can be irresponsible, tyrannical uh, oppression. So it's an idiom for being placed under power. Fourth, there's an authorization to eat meat. Up to this time, man did not eat meat. He was, according to Genesis 1, he was given all the plants of the field, trees trees, uh, in the garden to to eat. But he wasn't a meat eater. But now he's authorized to eat meat. But you shall not eat, uh, verse 3, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. I have given to you all things, even as the green herbs. This really undercuts the whole vegetarian argument. If you think that you're a vegan because of some sort of higher spiritual principle, then you're just out of line as far as the Noahic Covenant is concerned. This is not only an authorization to eat meat, but it's a basic statement that now man needs to eat meat for for nutritional principles. Now, at this point, somebody always says, well, God says here, every moving thing that lives shall be food for you. What about those dietary laws in the Mosaic Law? Well, that's where we have to come along and recognize that the Noahic Covenant is for everybody. We'll put it up on the overhead. We'll draw a big circle. This is all mankind. All human beings were under the Noahic Covenant. But the Abrahamic Covenant was between God and the descendants of Abraham. So that's a subset. All the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob are the Jews. They're the only ones who are parties to the Mosaic Law. And so there was a distinction there that they could not eat 
They could only eat clean animals, and they could not eat unclean animals. And this had to do primarily with the fact that the dietary laws were teaching certain things about avoiding that which has been impacted by sin. For example, unclean animals would be scavengers like hyenas or lobsters, shrimp, something that eats dead things. Well, dead things and death is a result of, of the curse of sin. So the reason you have this distinction between clean and unclean ultimately can be traced back to uh, animals that, that are usually involved with death or something like that. And so God is teaching some spiritual principles there about not being associated with sin. And so they were forbidden to eat unclean things. But in Acts chapter 10, when in the church age, when Peter sees the vision where he sees a tablecloth being let down from heaven, and that tablecloth is filled with all the animals, unclean, clean, and, and God says, you can eat everything, it's all clean now, it took Peter a while to get the point, but the point is that, that the dietary laws and the Mosaic law had nothing to do with diet. You're always going to come across somebody who says, well, you know, they didn't know how to cook pork right. Well, they didn't learn how to cook pork right and learn about trichinosis in Acts chapter 10 either. You know, they didn't learn how to properly cook. It has nothing to do with cooking or diet. It doesn't have to do with health. It had to do with what it taught in the spiritual realm. And you'll always find somebody who comes along. In fact, I had uh, I'd often thought that in light of you know, the silly stuff that goes along today, I wanted to write a spoof book called What Would Jesus Eat? You know, just kind of a spoof diet book. And uh, somebody beat me to it. It's a doctor, and it's some kind of serious dietary book. And they all go to this kind of thing where they think that the dietary laws, the Mosaic law, had something to do with health. And it had nothing to do with health. And the reason you know that is because you didn't discover new health principles in Acts 10. What happened was there was a spiritual change in Acts 10 called the church age and the coming of the Holy Spirit. So the Noahic covenant is the death knell for vegetarians. If it moves... You can eat it. Dead animal flesh is now a good thing. There are no restrictions except, point number five, there's a prohibition of eating blood or drinking blood. This was something that later on is uh, reiterated in the Mosaic Covenant because this became a part of a lot of uh, idolatry, pagan worship, and it was also has to do with the implication of life. Don't eat a living thing. And so there is a prohibition from from eating or drinking the blood. This does not prohibit you from eating a good uh, rack of lamb cooked rare or a good steak cooked rare. In fact, that's how you should eat a rack of lamb is rare. So eating blood is not prohibited. Sixth, uh, sixth aspect of the Noahic Covenant. Death required of every beast or man who takes a life a human life in a prohibited manner. Death is required. This is the authorization for capital punishment. Death is required now of any animal who kills a human being or any human being who takes a human life in a prohibited manner. Notice that last qualification. There are valid ways and reasons to take another human life. There are, in a, there are wrong ways and reasons to take another human life. But God clearly authorizes, as we see in this passage, 
the taking of human life under certain conditions and following certain uh, certain regulations. And this is known as capital punishment. In this verse we read, look at verse um, verse 5. Surely of your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning from the hand of every beast I will require, from the hand of every man, from the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of him. And the Hebrew word here is darash. It's repeated three times. The New King James does not do an adequate job of uh, of repeating it. Three times it's used. Surely your lifeblood I will require. From the hand of every beast I will require it. And from the hand of man and from the hand of every man's brother I will require the life of man. That's that word. Three times it's repeated. It is the word darash, D-A-R-A-S-H. And it means to ask. In some contexts, it means to inquire about something. It has the idea of investigation or search. And what that verb demonstrates is that God is going to search out the requirement that he's placed upon man to execute justice in these manners. That's how serious God takes this capital punishment provision. He is going to investigate to make sure man is doing this. Because of the reason given, he says, he gives the reason in verse 6, whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. And the Hebrew word for shed is the word shafak. S-H-A-P-H-A-K. And shafak means to literally to pour something out or to spill something or to shed something. And in many cases it has a literal meaning. For example, when you pour out the blood on the altar, you have this same word used. But in other passages it's used metaphorically to refer to a violent death. It doesn't refer to necessarily a violent death where blood is literally shed. For example, you can strangle somebody and that would be shedding their blood. You could poison somebody, and that would be shedding their blood. You don't have to stick a knife in them and eviscerate them on the spot in order to shed their blood. There are many different ways to do it. You can strangle them, poison them, hit them over the head, uh, all kinds of ways that are bloodless. But it's an idiom for violently taking somebody's life or, or murdering them. And it's used in that way in passages such as Numbers 35-33 and Deuteronomy 19-10 and Deuteronomy 21-7. So this is the idea that, that God is going to investigate the situation to make sure God, man is carrying out this provision. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. Why? Because it's a deterrent. See, in the current, and we're going to look at the doctrine of capital punishment before we're done here, but in the current debate over capital punishment, what you will always hear from people is some sort of art, pragmatic argument for capital punishment. It serves as a deterrent to crime. Well, it may or may not, but that's not what God said to do it. It serves as a, uh, it'll, it'll keep the uh, the prisons uh, empty. We're, we're spending millions of dollars to support these guys. Well, I've seen some statistics, I don't know if they're true or not, that it costs more money to execute somebody than it does to keep them alive in prison on a life sentence. 
and they argue that the reason for that is that the way we mollycoddle these uh, these criminals on death row is we give them so many uh, uh, appeals that they that, that that it costs the government so much money to run through all of these uh, appeals for a, a death row uh, inmate that it costs exorbitant amounts of money to put somebody on death row. Well, that's because we're pra- we're practicing the principle in an inappropriate manner. Remember, how you practice a principle doesn't mean the principle's wrong, and we have to we will look at that in detail. Just because it's something is practiced inappropriately doesn't mean the principle is invalid. The principle is valid. We just don't apply it in the correct way. So the Death is required of every beast or human being who takes a human life in a prohibited manner. Seventh provision of the covenant is that this covenant is made with Noah, his descendants, all of his descendants, and the animals that came off the ark, which is something we've already covered. So we'll move on to point eight. The eighth uh, provision in the covenant is that God promises to never again destroy the world in the same way. Now, he will destroy it through fire at the end of the millennium. But he's never again going to destroy the world through a watery worldwide cataclysm. He will only destroy it by fire. So there's a promise that there will no more be, and there will not again be a universal flood. So this again points to the fact that this is a, this is not a local flood. Because if God made a promise that I'll never again destroy the earth like I just did, then every time we have a local flood, like what we may have tonight with all this rain, that God would be breaking his promise. So it has to be a different kind of flood, not just a local flood. Point number nine, the sign of the promise is the rainbow. And the rainbow is, has special significance in scripture. There's also an interesting physics behind a rainbow. In order to get a rainbow, in order to have the right, right kind of light uh, refraction through a raindrop, it has to be large enough to precipitate, large enough to fall. You can have different kinds of halos, I understand, and different sorts of, of, um, of things where you get something like that. But in order to have a, a true rainbow, you have to have uh, you have to have a certain situation to produce the correct optics, and this indicates that you didn't have that. You didn't have rainfall prior to the flood because the rainbow is something new, something different. You might have had uh, uh, coronas or things of that nature prior to the to the flood, but not a rainbow per se. One of the most beautiful things you'll ever see is a rainbow. I remember one time coming down the driving from Cripple Creek, Colorado to Denver, and I was driving up just on a road up in the mountains on the, right on the front range in Colorado, and I looked out to the west. must have been the afternoon because whenever you see a rainbow, the sun has to be at your back. And I was driving north, and the sun was off to the to the must have been to the west and there was this this thunderstorm that had come across the plains and when you're up about 2000 feet and you're looking east you can see almost to Missouri from from Colorado and there were two rainbows that I could see out on the plains going from beginning to end and at times you could see a third one and I've never seen anything like just remarkable but that's a, every time you see a rainbow 
you need to be reminded of the Noahic covenant. Now, the, the rainbow itself has another significance, and that is that it is a reminder of God's presence. When you look at passages, we don't have time to look at them now, but if you look at Ezekiel, in the first chapter of Ezekiel 1, verse 28, there's the appearance of a rainbow around the around the throne of God. The same thing you see in Isaiah 6, and you see it in, in a Revelation chapter 4, verse 3, is that surrounding the throne of God is this rainbow. So what we're seeing is that God created a set of meteorological circumstances on the earth whereby we would be reminded of who he is and his presence every time you see a rainbow. This is not just some interesting meteorological or physical phenomenon, but this is something that is to remind you of who God is and is his personal signature in the clouds that he will never again destroy the earth by water. And we're so, we're so far removed by now that, that we've forgotten the impact of this, but the fear, the horrors of the flood were very real to those who lived in the Old Testament. Uh, look, for example, at Isaiah chapter uh, 54, uh, verse 8, which refers to the uh, 54, 8, and 9 refer to the flood. In an outburst of anger, I hid my face from you for a moment, but with everlasting loving kindness, God says in Isaiah 54, 8, there's our word chesed, with everlasting faithful love, I will have compassion on you, says the Lord, your Redeemer. Verse 9, for this is like the days of Noah to me, when I swore that the waters of Noah would not flood the earth again. So I have sworn that I will not be angry with you, nor will I rebuke you. For the mountains may be removed and the hills may shake. That's what happened at the flood. But my loving kindness will not be removed from you, and my covenant of peace will not be shaken, says the Lord, who has compassion on you. So what God is saying to Israel is that just as I am faithful to my covenant with Noah, and I'm faithful meteorologically and geophysically, I will be faithful spiritually to my covenant with you. Psalm 29 is another, I have Psalm, that should be Psalm 29. Psalm 29, we have another reference to the flood. In verse 10, we see the Lord sat as king at the flood, and this is the, the Hebrew word mabul, which is used only of the Noahic flood. It is not used of any local flood. And there we read, if we look at the context, it's a praise of God and his uh, majesty and his character and his essence. And at the end we said the Lord sat enthroned and he sat as king at the flood. Yes, the Lord sits as king forever, shows his sovereignty over the waters, the destructive waters. And verse 11, the Lord will give strength to his people. The Lord will bless his people uh, with peace. And the point here is that the Jews are being reminded that all of the circumstances of life are under the control of God. He is the one who is able to take care of all the details. He controlled even the events of the flood. He brought about stability after the flood. And if he can do that in this worldwide cataclysm, then he can certainly do that in terms of the personal problems that you and I face in life. And so this same idea of God, who God is the one 
who rules over the waters, is the background for understanding what goes on in Mark chapter 4. In Mark chapter 4, we have the uh, episode where Jesus stills the storm. In Mark 4.38, Jesus goes out on the Sea of Galilee with the disciples. And remember, these guys are not un- unfamiliar with storms out on the Sea of Galilee. And I understand that, that the Sea of Galilee is a very interesting body of water. The meteorology there is, 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 is unusual. And storms can come up in, in, in just a, a few minutes. And because of the uh, dynamics and the depth of the Sea of Galilee, there can be huge waves there. So these guys are professional fishermen. Peter and John have been out there their whole lives. They grew up on the water. They grew up out on the boats. And this storm is a storm that is unique in their experience, and they are uh, scared to death. And in Mark 4, 38, they've gotten in the boat back in verse 35. They're going to cross to the other side. And we're told that a great windstorm arose in verse 37, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. Now, these are experienced seamen. And Jesus is in the stern, fast asleep on a pillow. The guys are all panicking. They're they're sitting on the panic button. They're running around bailing water. You can just picture the storm, the wind, the water pouring in. And Jesus is just fast asleep, and they wake him up. Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? Verse 39, he arose and he rebuked the wind and he said to the sea, peace be still. See, what Jesus is demonstrating when he stills these waters is he's dealing with this this, this reality, this fear of, of destruction by water that goes back to the Noahic flood. And he's showing that he's the, he is, it's the Psalm 29.10, king at the flood who sits and rules over the flood waters. He is God. He controls the waters and the wind. So the Noahic covenant promises that this will never, ever happen again. So the conclusion that we see in this looking at the Noahic flood is that it's unconditional. It's still in effect. It hasn't changed. Just as the rainbow is a sign that you can, that God's never again going to destroy the world by water. It's also a sign that you can still eat meat. It's also a sign that capital punishment is still in effect. And that leads us to the doctrine of capital punishment. And I have about 12 points on the doctrine of capital punishment, which is going to take a good hour to go through. And I don't want to start it tonight when we're about four minutes from ending, so I'm going to go ahead and and close in prayer, and next time we'll go through the doctrine of capital punishment. This is crucial for understanding a lot of issues today in society, and especially in this election year, uh, it usually always comes up. But it is a watershed issue. You've got to understand what the Bible says about capital punishment, completely divorced from how it's practiced. You have to understand the principle, and we'll do that next time with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word this evening. We thank you for the, your, your faithfulness, your covenant faithfulness, your loyal love to us, that you will deal with us on the basis of these contracts, these covenants that you have revealed in your word that reveal to us so much about who you are and all of your essence, your attributes, your character. 
Father, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we've studied this evening. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.